When you see what's being done to the civilians there, like I'm talking 80 year old grandparents who haven't left. We've seen videos of what is being done to them. Like I can't tell you that's how you treat someone you don't like or an enemy. That's pure hatred where you believe an 80 year old man who can't walk deserves to be tortured and murdered and you can film it and upload it. To me, that just shows a deep rooted hatred and just absolute like, it's almost looking at Armenians as subhuman. That's how you can do this. And when you look at both players, the main ones of Turkey and um, Azerbaijan, the history they have with Armenians, where Turkey literally tried to wipe out, their goal was genocide to wipe out all Armenians, including Greeks, of course, too, and Assyrians. This, you understand how that never went away and just a continuation of that policy. Welcome back, everybody, to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. This is Pat McCauley, as always. I hope everybody is doing well. This week's guest is the amazing Lena Tajin. Lena is the founder and author of Vegan Armenian Kitchen, which is a platform all about taking traditional Armenian cuisine um, and modernizing it and veganizing it. Um, and it's an amazing resource and amazing book that I highly encourage you to check out. So I had recorded an episode with Lena about a month ago, and the conflict in Artsakh was just starting back then, um, and I went to release this episode. I shot her a message, and uh, what we had talked about a month ago was pretty much out of date. So uh, the first half of this episode was literally um, recorded yesterday. Uh, it's an updated picture of the events taking place in Artsakh. Um, and all we can do to uh, support humanitarian efforts there. Um, so I have links to everything she mentions um, in terms of places you can donate and help out um, in the show notes, um, so please check those out. Um, so yeah, we talk about kind of the history behind what's going on there right now, which is not portrayed very much right now um, in American media, um, and the history between Armenia, Az Azerbaijan, and Turkey. We also talk all about why Lena went plant-based, how she tackled creating plant-based versions of traditional Armenian foods, um, why the story behind the foods is most important in Armenian culture, um, her favorite dishes from her new book, Vegan Armenian Kitchen, the growing vegan scene in Armenia, um, and why food is such an important aspect of the Armenian culture. Uh, at the end, we talk a little bit about the challenges of self-publishing a book. Um, Lena is awesome. Uh, her work is awesome. I think she's tackling one of the biggest um, hurdles to people changing what they eat. It's the traditions. It's the um, family aspect of food um, and not wanting to offend grandma in, in you know, our traditions. And she has a great approach to... Uh, keeping traditions and keeping stories alive, but doing so in a more modern and sustainable way. So I'm going to let Lena tell the rest here. Again, please check out the links um, of how you can support um, Artsakh and um, Armenians at this time. Without further ado, the amazing Lena Tajin. Right, I have Lena here. Welcome back, Lena. Uh, to give 
to give a little um, context here to people tuning in. So we recorded an episode about a month ago, just when things were starting to happen in Armenia. And you gave this beautiful rundown of what was happening over there and, you know, how people could help and things like that. And I shot you a message about releasing this episode this coming week. And you were like, we should probably get on here and do an update because things have totally changed over there. And um, yeah, so this is definitely the right move uh, to give people up-to-date info. And this will be out literally tomorrow. Um, so it'll be it'll be good and hopefully as up to date as we can be and um, yeah so welcome back again <laughs> good to see you again and um, yeah I think I think a good place to start is maybe we could touch on what initially happened you know four to six weeks ago um, and how that's sort of changed and where things are at now and um, towards the end maybe we can talk about kind of again how people. Um, in the U.S. and elsewhere can use their voice and help out. Of course, that sounds good. And I want to say, of course, thank you for having me back. I'm obviously happy to be back. I wish it was under happier circumstances, but I am very grateful to be able to provide an update. So um, when we spoke, I guess, over a month ago, uh, the situation had just begun. And essentially on September 27th in the morning, um, Artsakh, which is a region... um, (laughs) Let me actually give a little bit of a update on what Artsakh is. So it's yeah. Um, please, so- please assume that yeah. I know nothing, <laughs> and and that listeners know nothing because sure. it is confusing and there's a lot of history as as I learned last time. So go as deep as you'd like. <laughs> of course. So sure, I will. I will try my best. So um, Artsakh is a historically and ethnically Armenian region, and what the issue that makes it so complicated today and how it's portrayed in international media is because by a move during the Soviet Union, which I will talk about, it's internationally recognized as Azerbaijan. So whenever it's being spoken about, it's technically Azerbaijan, and Armenians are therefore able to be portrayed as occupiers because they are in control. They were in control of it until the recent uh, aggression. So during the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin in 1923 gave Artsakh to Azerbaijan, even though it was, when I'm saying majority, over 80% Armenian, as well as historically Armenian. We have churches there, monasteries from, you know, the times of BC, like 4th century, 5th century BC. So it was given to Azerbaijan. There's a couple of theories as to why, one of which is the very simple um, divide and conquer. If you have people fighting amongst each other, they won't, you know, fight against the actual Soviet Union. Another theory is that it was done to appease Turkey, as Azerbaijan and Turkey are obviously allies. So because of this, there's lots of complication about what Artsakh is, how is it internationally recognized as Azerbaijan, but has an Armenian indigenous ethnic uh, majority. So um, that area is what we're talking about today. That was the area that was attacked. So there was a war um, when the dissolution of the Soviet um, Union began. There was a call from Artsakh. The majority was 99.8% in a referendum voted for independence. This was not taken well by Azerbaijan, and a war actually begun because of that. They just want to be reunited, reunified, sorry, unified with Armenia, and a full-scale war broke out in 1994. Armenia had control of Artsakh. 
itself. And that's why it's now seen as like Armenia controls Azerbaijani territory, when in reality, prior to 1923, it was not, it was never part of independent Azerbaijan. So this is the area I'm talking about. And on September 27th in the morning, Azerbaijan, with the complete support, uh, direct and indirect from Turkey, attacked Artsakh. And for anyone who doesn't know maybe the geography, Armenia and Artsakh have a combined population of just about 3 million. Uh, Azerbaijan has close to 10 million and Turkey has 80 million. So when we're taught, we have to make sure that it's not seen as a war of this equal side versus equal side. It's genuinely like the best description I've ever seen other than aggression is an attempt of ethnic cleansing of this small indigenous area. So um, this started on September 27. And I do want to make a note that this was known by the U.S. Embassy of America, um, U.S. Embassy in Yerevan, because the few days prior, they actually put out a statement urging their own citizens not to travel to Artsakh. So they clearly were given at least a heads up. I don't know if they knew the full scale of what was going to happen. So it was definitely known and okayed. And since then, it's been essentially 44 days of, you can say war, you can say aggression, but just relentless attacks on the people of Artsakh. And some of the attacks have even come into Armenia proper. And there have been what I want to focus on and what I tend to focus on now are the war crimes committed, because these are the ones to me that I will never be okay with none of these being like Azerbaijan and Turkey not being held accountable. Just a couple that I can talk about quickly is Turkey actually employed, and this has been confirmed by independent media outlets, as well as mainstream like BBC, Turkey actually employed Syrian mercenaries to come fight for Azerbaijan. And as one investigative journalist found out, they were being used as human shields for Azerbaijan, kind of like the first line of defense. So these are literally ISIS members being hired from Syria to come and fight for Azerbaijan. That's what we're dealing with here. And a couple of interviews with ones that were either, either leave, like when I say leaving, I mean fleeing or captured by the Armenian side, they said they were offered bonuses if they decapitated Armenians and proved it. This is what we're talking about. Like when I'm talking about not just against Azerbaijan and Turkey, there was also ISIS in the region brought by Turkey specifically. There's also the use of cluster bombs. And this has been confirmed by Human Rights Watch as early as October 4th, I believe. And cluster bombs, for anyone who doesn't know, the goal is as much destruction as possible. There is essentially sub munitions that come out and the point is indiscriminate killing. And this was being used, they're banned. White phosphorus was one that shocked all of us to our core because it was being used to destroy the um, ecosystem, the mountains, and also Armenians fighting in these mountains were burned from the from white phosphorus, which if it's being used on humans, it's completely banned and considered a war crime. Um, other than that, there's so many, oh, the treatment of POWs. So when Armenian POWs were captured, I'll of course spare anyone the details, but you can find out by looking at accounts like Armenian reporters, Artonk Media, the treatment of the Armenian POWs are all war crimes. We had to witness horrendous things being literally uploaded on video of what was being done to the Armenian soldiers. So just 44 days, every single day, it was war crime after war crime and no international response that actually mattered. There was condemnation, but there was nothing actually being done. And um, this also, we have to remember this was done during a pandemic. So what happens when people are being bombed, they go to bomb shelters. What happens when a small group, uh, sorry, a large group of people are in a small area and they have no choice? The, um, the cases of COVID increase and there's more deaths as a result. So we have to always remember, that's something I forget to mention, this was strategically done during a pandemic and it's resulting in now more uh, deaths outside of the actual aggression. And uh, one other thing that we should note that I found out pretty late is with most situations in which there's international silence, you always have to see that there's other players at hand. And one thing that we found out later was there's a mining company, it's 
called, it's based in the UK, it's Anglo-Asian Mining Company. And one of their former names were actually Ottoman Mining Group. And this is very significant for Armenians as the Ottoman Empire was responsible for the Armenian genocide of 1915. They actually had a statement saying they were planning on going into the area of Artsakh once it was resolved. So they have their own mining interests to basically take over copper, gold, any of the natural resources of Artsakh once it was resolved. And what resolves means is Azerbaijan has control because they have a deal with Azerbaijan. So we saw that there was actually mining companies invested in this too. The stock prices increased. This is actually reported in, there's a magazine from New Hampshire because there is a governor. Uh, I believe his name is Chris Sununu. He's the governor of New Hampshire. He, um, his family's connected to this mining company. So they covered it and they were talking about what they will now make as a result of this. So there's even mining interests at play. And this is something that's very common with any area that's indigenous people who are being attacked. There's usually some sort of financial gain for many people. And that kind of explains the silence. And one thing to note for anyone who's curious about maybe a bias you've seen in mainstream media against, because as I, when you usually talk to people about the difference in size of Armenia, Artsakh compared to Azerbaijan and Turkey, that's when they start to understand that even calling this a war is not genuinely appropriate. I wouldn't call this a war. I just say it sometimes because it's easier. But um, one thing, The Guardian in 2017 had an expose on the $3 billion Azerbaijani money laundering scheme in which they tracked, I think it was $2.9 billion exact, money that was sent out in covert payments to US and European politicians and journalists with the goal of essentially, I don't know what the word is, not whitewashing, but it's like they wanted to make Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan's regime, seem more, I don't know, in a, in a better light, as well as the relations with the outside world. So there's actually an expose on how they use over almost $3 billion to change public opinion through U.S. politicians, European politicians, as well as journalists. And you will see that sometimes when you see reports of what's happening, there is no mention of the difference in size. There's no mention of why it's so significant to Armenians that Turkey's involved when they're not mentioning the history Armenians have with Turkey from 1915, which is so relevant. And it makes so much sense why Armenians are looking at this as a continuation of 1915. So there's lots of um, aspects, obviously, at hand that I think are important to note. On November 9th, a deal was signed after 44 days of fighting. A deal was signed. We found out on November 10th in the morning. Uh, it was signed by Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia. It was brokered by Russia. Uh, it's, a, it's Essentially, you can call it a peace deal, a ceasefire deal, whatever you want to call it. There's nine main points, but if you want to look at the positives of it, it means there has to be a complete end to the fighting, and that's going to be monitored by Russian peacekeeping forces, so it's not just a ceasefire. We've seen a couple of ceasefires that were immediately broken because there was no monitoring system in place. Now they're supposed to be Russian peacekeepers. I've also heard many political analysts say no one won except you, unless you consider Russia to be a winner because now they have a huge presence in the region through peacekeeping. So it's an interesting take on what happened, but there's, uh, and then the exchange of bodies as well as POWs is supposed to take place. So the problem with the deal is a lot of it's not certain. One thing, sorry, the regions that Azerbaijan essentially captured will be Azerbaijani as well as three key territories in Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh. They're both used interchangeably. So we, um, there's lots of, you know, essentially it's like 44 days of seeing work crime after war crime and how it ended, I can put it very lightly and say Azerbaijan essentially was rewarded for what it did and Armenia lost even more as a result of this peace deal. And there's even a, now there's only one connection for Armenia to Artsakh. And that area has to have 
a peacekeeping contingent, a Russian peacekeeping contingent, and it's going to be there for five years. So we don't even know what's going to happen in five years. We don't know basically is it's just going to be an extremely militarized route for Armenians to get into Artsakh. There's a lot about it that's not uh, that's not certain. One main thing that's worrying a lot of Armenians is they were assured by Russia, by Putin. I know I say Putin as in the a Canadian French wise, but I mean <laughs> Putin. <laughs> I always do that, sorry. So I mean the Russian president. They were assured that um, there would be no Turkish peacekeepers in the region. And when I say peacekeepers, I'm using quotations. Um, that was assured. And now we're finding out that Turkey actually voted in its own parliament to send Turkish peacekeepers. And we that's still being discussed between Russia and Turkey. And that's a main, main area of contention for Armenians saying that R- Turkish, any any troops of Turkish origin have no place in Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh. So we're still, there's still so many aspects of this deal. It's been released on November 9th. There's so many aspects of it that are so unclear and are still being debated by Turkey and Russia. There's a really good investigative journalist, Lindsay Snell, who she's going to come back to Armenia. And that's what she wants to focus on. She wants to focus on whether or not Turkey will be allowed through this deal, even though it was not in the deal, to have a presence now in Artsakh and what that means. So there's a nine point plan. You can read it online. There's different aspects to it. There's a lot of it that's obviously very detrimental to Armenians of Artsakh. And what you're going to see now is lots of Armenians leaving. There's now a refugee crisis of all the Artsakh Armenians who had to flee and come to Armenia. So that's where we are today. Every single day we're learning something new. There was certain monasteries that were from like, uh, I think, believe it was 9th century BC, Dadivang, and we thought we were going to lose it. Now we're finding out that technically it might be in the region that's going to be occupied by Russian peacekeeping troops. So we still every day are learning something new, but that's where we are at today. I hope that was slightly understandable. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, totally. And it's just crazy, as I said before, too, that, you know, none of this, unless like you're following somebody on social media, like our mutual friend Zare there that I follow closely. Yeah. Like I have no idea about any of this because it's not really portrayed in the media at all, um, other than some, you know, five minutes here and five minutes there. And yeah, from like my understanding in, in when you see Artsakh, when you see it on the map, like if you can picture like the entire like East coast of the United States, like the Eastern side of the United States, like invading Rhode Island, you know, the smallest state in the country. It's just like, when you see it, it's like, wow. And I guess like my biggest question, and maybe this is unknown other than just kind of like, the the history with with the countries um you know what and, and maybe there's economic interest as you indicated maybe there is still that like want to do like some kind of ethnic cleanse um but like what is kind of the understanding of like why is that region so important i know it's beautiful um i've seen photos but like what why why is it so important why why you know what to just invade and like the some of the videos i've seen are just absolutely horrific of just you know cutting off people's body parts and just all kinds of crazy things and um yeah. is it is it just the history and kind of that like want to cleanse armenians from that area or like do we know like why they're doing it i think 
I think there's probably lots of things we don't know, which I think is a fair thing to say because there's only what we know on the surface that people have released. But I'm sure that even the mining, I didn't know about that until probably five days before the peace deal was made. And that was something I've started seeing other people talk about. And that's huge, like to see that people are going to make millions off this ethnic cleansing. So you start to see different interests. Of course, um, there's I can put it into like the most basic sense of just genuine hatred of that region, of the people there, right. of the Armenians, because of the fact of the history, as you mentioned. So history plays a part. The fact that it was given to Azerbaijan and then taken back by Armenia, like the war, any time there's a war, regardless of who wins right or wrong, there's always going to be scars. There's always going to be like resulting hatred and anger. And that does not get solved. That confessor and become worse. And we've seen some of the propaganda from the Azerbaijani side of how they look at Armenians. There's footage out there of literally in kindergartens. I have a nephew who's five. This is younger than five years old being asked, who are the enemies? And they respond saying Armenians. What do the Armenians want? Gold, which I had no idea Armenians had a goal of getting gold from somewhere. Like we would have made a deal with the mining company if that was our goal. So you're starting to see that as a result of the war, what that turns into in terms of state propaganda, in terms of the, you know, the outlook on Armenians, that they, they they genuinely look at us. Like when you see the treatment of POWs, the civilians who are left, which you've kind of touched on, I don't want to give too many details. It's important to give Turker warnings for this kind of stuff. But when you see what's being done to the civilians there, like I'm talking 80 year old grandparents who haven't left, we've seen videos of what is being done to them. Like I can't tell you that's how you treat someone you don't like or an enemy. That's pure hatred where you believe an 80-year-old man who can't walk deserves to be tortured and murdered, and you can film it and upload it. To me, that just shows a deep-rooted hatred and just absolute, like, it's almost looking at Armenians as subhuman. That's how you can do this. And when you look at both players, the main ones of Turkey and um, Azerbaijan, the history they have with Armenians, where Turkey literally tried to wipe out, their goal was genocide, to wipe out all Armenians, including Greeks to an Assyrians, this you understand how that never went away and just a continuation of that policy. And when you allow things like this to happen, I know lots of people, I think you made a very good um, analogy with comparing it to US and Rhode Island, because that's a good way for people to look at what's happening and how honestly I say war, I've said it a couple of times, but as I said, it's not a fair assessment of what happened. But when you allow countries like Turkey that have these huge aspirations to get away with what they just did and now even maybe be rewarded by having peace and troops in the region. Turkey has openly said that they have their sights on Jerusalem. They have their sights on Cyprus. They've just encircled it. They've made prov uh, provocative moves there. They are increasing their attacks on Assyrians, on Kurds, on Yezidis. So when you show them that, like, we're almost like an experiment where they got away with this and now you're going to see that go, like that same mentality, that same aggression being done more confidently. It's, I'm not trying to say it never happened before. It's just going to be done more confidently. And for Turkey's president, Erdogan, to literally say, next is Jerusalem. What, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, mm. And when you allow them to do this to Armenians, and it's because Armenians are just not an oil-rich country, we don't have enough allies that are powerful, this will continue. And I don't want that to happen. I'm not, I don't mean to make it sound like a threat. I'm just saying that you have to stop people. You have to make sure they understand that they're, it's not okay. You can't do this because... We're going to see the same mentality completely go not only through the region, but outside of the region, too. We've even seen violence against Armenians come into Europe. In France, there were literally rally, rallies of people saying Armenians get out, like Turkish people under the Grey Wolves, which is a registered terrorist organization. Mm. They're literally chanting for the Armenians in the Armenian neighborhood to come out and show themselves. Like, this is just, I'm just speaking about Armenians, but... 
this is going to transfer to other regions. And we can see that already with their increased attacks. Like, I feel like the confidence of what they just did in Cyprus is literally because they got away with what they did in Artsakh, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, I can, as you were talking there, like I can envision sort of that like generational hatred. Like you see that in a lot of places in the U.S., you know, towards African-Americans in kind of, you know, Southern states. And, you know, the, the grandparents grew up during a time where you treated those people that way. And it's kind of like ingrained generationally until kind of somebody breaks that mold. And I can understand, um, not understand, I can't understand it, but I, I feel like I know, um, to an extent why that happens. And it's a generational type hatred. It's just crazy too, that in today's world, that type of stuff goes on, you know, um, in a, in a connected world where we, you know, like I, I'm speaking with, you know, in Armenian right now, you know, (laughs) and it's like a beautiful human being. And it's like to think that people are so evil um, you know, when we live in such an interconnected global, uh, world, it's just, it's hard to fathom that, that, that stuff still goes on and, and hatred to that extent goes on, you know? So it just, it's crazy, but thank you so much for sharing that. And I guess the, the next question, um, I would have is, you know, what can people do, whether you're in the U S or elsewhere, um, to support financially or to, um, you know, speak up to local officials or, you know, what, what can people do? Um, is there kind of like a general playbook here? Sure. Um, so right now I know that technically during the war, what we were trying to do is make people aware of what was happening. Cause that was what we were finding a lack of coverage, but even now it's still important. I know that maybe a lot of people didn't know what Artsakh was or didn't know the history or the connection with Armenia and Azerbaijan and Turkey, but to stay updated on this. And there's lots of great websites. Um, there's a specifically investigative journal, for example, has um, reporters who were in Artsakh and covering what was happening. And as I said before, Lindsay Snell is part of that team and she's going to be returning, covering more about the Turkish peacekeepers in the region. So to stay updated on what happened and to say, see what is going to happen with this peace plan and just not let this be a forgotten chapter in history, that's an unfortunate situation. So I would really urge people to stay updated, even if you don't see the direct connection to your life in U.S. or Canada. And there are many actions you can take. If you're from New Hampshire, (laughs) please do something about uh, Governor Chris Sununu. Please do not let him get away with having basically profiting off ethnic cleansing for mining interests, whether that's writing letters. He's blocked his Instagram. You can't tag him anymore in your stories, but you can certainly keep emailing, calling him, not harassment, just making him explain his decision and making him accountable for what he did. That's the point of a democracy. We can hold people accountable for horrible decisions. There's lots of action alerts, particularly for Americans through um, ANCA. It's ANCA.org. It's ANCA.org, Armenian National Committee of America. There's lots of news alerts. They're very easy. They're like um, pre-written forms you can send to certain officials. The main goal is the recognition of Artsakh. We genuinely believe that if Artsakh is recognized, we will be able to at least um, have the minimum amount of international security so that this kind of stuff doesn't happen again. And in terms of donations, the largest humanitarian fund right now is Armenia Fund. You can donate to them. They're an NGO. 
Um, in terms of on the ground, you can see directly where your money is going. There's a really great organization in Armenia, Kuidi, because it translates to sisters in Armenian. It's um, K-O-O-Y-R-I-G-S, and they are essentially providing all the refugees and displaced people with uh, fresh produce, and they are really, really um, stretching every dollar. So the way they're doing it is whatever donations they get, they're buying specifically from Armenian farmers who the prices for produce are so incredibly cheap, especially compared to imported products or supermarket. So they've even estimated that for one person for 60 days, it's $2.09 to have to make sure they have fresh produce for 60 days. So you can really see that every dollar literally does count. And there's also a newer initiative called the Artsakh Relocation Project. And this is where you can one time or monthly sponsor a newly displaced or um, newly displaced family from Artsakh in Armenia, especially during the winter. So there's a couple of different ones. Um, it depends on what you specifically want to contribute to. And yeah, just staying informed and keeping an eye on what's happening. So at the very least, it maybe doesn't get worse because there might be more international pressure at this point. Mm. Well, thank you very much for that. And um, thank you for speaking up about it. Um, and I will uh, edit this and plug in um, the second half here all about um, your latest book. Um, and congratulations on that again. Um, so I would love to uh, pivot here and, and get into get into your story. And um, uh, yeah, so I'll give you the reins and allow you to uh, take it back as far as you want to go. Were you uh, born in Armenia or born in Canada? No, I was born in Canada. Very nice. Very nice. And in the Toronto area? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Give us give us the rundown. Give, give us a little background if you would. Sure. So as you said, I'm from Canada and I guess I'll start when it gets a little bit relevant to this conversation. <laughs> so I went, to, I knew nothing about veganism, vegetarianism. It's not a thing in the Armenian community, especially back when I became vegetarian or vegan. So it happened for me in my first year of university, I essentially found out there was like a animal rights group. And I, you know, as a person who like loves animals, quote unquote, I uh, was like, oh, what could this be about? And then I saw that there was a video and I watched it, it was about fur farms, not about uh, food or factory farms. So it was about fur farms. And I just, as many people who have no idea, it was obviously shocking, extremely disturbing. And I realized like, if this is happening for fur, like what could possibly be happening for food where you know the animal has to get killed. So I became vegetarian, I believe overnight. And then the following year I became vegan. And it was after learning just like, I think it was earthlings actually that gave me that push to understand that dairy industry is just as problematic. So I went vegan. And um, after that, I went to, I don't know if I was, I'm, my timeline's not great, but I essentially went to a separate nutrition program. So I became a nutritionist because being vegan made me very interested in health because I was constantly explaining to people at that time, like, no, I'm not going to die from iron deficiency. No, this is fine. This is fine. <laughs> so I became interested. I think many vegans, especially in the beginning and back then, you inevitably have to become interested in health and to make sure you're not losing all these vitamins and minerals. And there's a scene in the, um, what was it? That movie, the Greek movie, uh, my big fat or a uh, Greek wedding that okay. everyone always references when the family finds out the person's vegetarian or they don't eat meat. And you just have to feel like you always have to have these counters. Like it's always like, how are you not eating meat? So you have to explain it. So I became very interested in nutrition. I became a nutritionist. And then my little reward to myself when I was finished was to go to Armenia for the first time. And <laughs> it's like veganism in the diaspora, even in Canada as an Armenian was quite 
not difficult, but you had to basically do a lot of explaining. You had to always be ready to like, you know, speak for like an hour about why you're vegan, how you're not going to die, all this stuff. So I kept wondering like what it's going to be like in actual Armenia. So um, I went there in 2011 and I was supposed to go for three months that ended up turning into six years. <laughs> so I lived and worked there and I was vegan for the first year I was living with a host family and then I had to switch no I had to I made the decision to switch back to vegetarianism as I was staying with the host family because I can get into that but I made the switch to vegetarianism and then eventually when I was living back on my own then that's part of the story with the book is you discovered on your own all these vegan options how it's so possible there that I went back to veganism and I've stayed like that since so I think that little intermission with vegetarian, vegan to vegetarian actually allowed me to like learn more about Armenian cuisine in Armenia. So then I eventually came back and <laughs> I started documenting these. I was blogging there. Sorry, I should say I began writing there. And then I started a blog and I was talking about nutrition, food, travel, all these things together. And I was slowly collecting these foods that were either from the diaspora or Armenia proper that were vegan or plant, like veganized or plant-based. And I started archiving all that. And then when I came back, I officially started a website, Vegan Armenian Kitchen. And this was, again, to document both veganized and plant-based uh, Armenian cuisine. And yeah, and then the book came about a year after that. So that's bringing us to the current timeline. <laughs> I hope that was uh, no, <laughs> informative. That was, that was very detailed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I, no, I find it interesting, like the, the many different avenues that that people, you know, get to going vegetarian or veganism. Um, and I think like everybody kind of has a different path and all the people that sort of put out content and information in different ways, whether it's somebody, you know, showing you a video on fur farming or, you know, showing you the health benefits or showing you whatever. Um, I just think there's a place for all of it and, and different people resonate with different things. And um, exactly. Um, but anyway, exactly. um, I'm curious on sort of your personal, um, health or, um, journey to, uh, you know, being a, a healthy young woman, like what, if anything changed, um, once you made that change to what you were eating? So uh, I have many friends and lots of acquaintances that when they kind of went vegan overnight, like all these health ailments improved and they have all these stories and I've read about them and I've always been so impressed, especially because I think whether you're vegan for animal rights or the environment, you kind of inevitably become at least somewhat interested in health. So I think the health will play a role. If not, even if it's not your main reason for being vegan, it will start playing a role. So I'm always fascinating to learn about the different benefits of veganism, even if it's like a more... Um, individual stories rather than like proven studies. Uh, there's a word for it. I'm just slipping my mind. But for me, I would say that when I initially went vegan, I was a late um, acne haver. <laughs> it came in my like early 20s. So when I actually went vegan, that improved. Am I, am I 100% certain that it was only veganism and there was no other factors? I can't say because at the time I didn't know that that could be something that would help with veganism. But in terms of um, other huge health benefits, it's not, I was pretty healthy, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I had these huge, like, I didn't see these huge health improvements. I kind of just stayed the same. So it's not better or worse. It's kind of the same with, I know, no acne for now. We'll see what happens in the future. But um, I know lots of people who, when they go vegan, the main thing they talk about is the energy. And that makes so much sense to me because I feel like with the meat in your stomach and the digestion process, like I can understand that so much. 
And I know that um, there's lots of, obviously, if you have heart conditions, this is so beneficial for you. But for me, if I'm going to be fully honest, other than the skin improvement, I, I wasn't feeling horrible before to feel amazing after. So I would say I feel good. And I would say that one surprising thing is I think after I went vegan, my iron surprisingly started getting better. Maybe I'm paying more attention to it, but that was actually getting better. And my B12, every year I get my blood checked. It's, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. Uh, I did an experiment with my mom um, probably four or five years ago now. And, you know, this was when I was first, you know, getting into plant-based and we did like a six week experiment and she went plant-based with me for six weeks and same sort of thing with the iron, which is what everybody tells you you're not going to get enough of. Um, her iron went up and like normalized and she was kind of traditionally, um, in the past low on, on iron. And, um, again, just a, just a funny thing that, you know, you realize, um, you know, sort of the miss around, the myths around, but, um, yeah, I would love to, what I think is really cool about what you're doing is you're addressing like one of the biggest kind of obstacles for people to eat more plant-based and eat better for themselves and better for the world. Um, it's the, it's the traditions, it's the social aspect, it's the you know, Sunday nights when you go home and the whole family comes over and you're cooking. Um, and, and again, to, uh, not to call out Zare, but I know like that is a huge part of his life, you know, like when he goes home to his parents' house and like all his cousins come over and everything, like they have their traditional, like pig type feast. And like, he's just, so he loves the tradition of it. And Um, you know, I I know so many people like that, that, you know, not just Armenians, but people who have all, all different kinds of traditions around food and, you know, you're just, you know, you're respecting those traditions, but, you know, modernizing them and giving people a way to get exactly what they're used to and honor their traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, but doing so in a way that is more sustainable and, and better for themselves. So, Um, yeah, tell me like kind of where you came up with like the idea for that and how you sort of went about like veganizing Armenian cuisine. Sure. So first of all, I wanted to mention to call Zada out again. I watch his stories as well. And it's like those, I know exactly what you're talking about. The Chorobas, the Armenian barbecue, where sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I'm just skipping through them. But you can see it's all about family and like being together. So exactly. That's a big thing with any, I think, ethnicity, especially. So One thing I'll say is when I went to Armenia, one mistake I was making, and it's different now because I was in Armenia in 2011 originally. So one mistake I was making, and I talk about this in the book, is I was translating veganism to Armenian. So I was saying, which is like very strict vegetarian. So to most people, when they're hearing this, they they don't even know what to do with that. They're like, like, (laughs) what would you like me to do with this diet? You know what I mean? Like, it's very, the word, it makes sense, but it's not something that's common, let's say. So I was doing that and I was always being faced with, oh, there's nothing or, you know, exactly like that movie I was mentioning, they'll give you instead of lamb, they'll give you chicken. So it was like these misunderstandings. So at one point it finally dawned on me that restaurants during Lent, which is huge in Armenia because it's the first Christian country, restaurants during Lent literally will have a Lenten menu. And what does Lent mean? It means no animal products, right? So this light bulb went off in my head that restaurants, even in like 
you know, remote areas will know what Lent is. They know if you say the word Bach or Bas in Eastern Armenian. So instead of saying, asking for like strict vegetarian food, I would ask if you have Lenten food. And that actually changed everything. And I started discovering like these traditional foods that were vegan. I just wouldn't say vegan. You would say they were Lenten. And that's why I always distinguish between plant-based and veganized when I'm talking about the cookbook, because the recipes come from both sides. So when I first thought about doing the cookbook, the idea that came to me was I was going to be veganizing a lot of the classic dishes. But because of my experience with learning about the Lenten menus of everywhere, and like there were so many foods that like we don't even know about in diaspora that you just know because they're like Armenian, like uh, recipes from Armenia, right? So uh, eventually the concept of the book changed because I had so many recipes and like I remembered so many dishes that were you know, I discovered while I was there and they were naturally vegan because they were for uh, Lent. And during Lent, it's 40 days. You're not going to only survive off, let's say like, you know, avocado toast or something. You're going to actually have to have nutritious, wholesome, like plant-based, healthy ingredients, like whole foods, right? So there's lots of bean-based dishes. There's lots of grain dishes, lots of vegetables. So it's very healthy, good, whole foods-based cuisine. So the book concept changed because of that. And now I would say it's majority plant-based, which is like natural. And then I had to veganize some of the classics. I don't know how much, um, how familiar you are with like Armenian food, but let's say like the, uh, it's called, it's more commonly referred to as Lachmajum, but it's Masalosh, just like an Armenian flat pizza. I don't know if you know that one. I don't, I don't, but enlighten oh, okay. me. It's a, <laughs> we call it the Armenian pizza, which it's just basically like a ground meat with spices and onions. Maybe that's why you don't know it because it's not vegetarian, but now they offer a lot of Armenian places actually will offer a vegan or a vegetarian option. So there's dishes like this, which are classic. And to me, when I think about that dish, I don't think about the meat. Like when people ask, do you miss meat? I'm like, I don't technically miss meat. I miss some of the dishes that had meat in them because I like the way it was prepared. Or I like the spices. So these are the dishes that are classic for us. Another one is like mantabur. It's like a dumpling soup. And it's, um, these are the things that to me, replacing the meat doesn't actually change the taste of the meal because it's the spices, it's the way it's prepared and you can just, you know, customize it for yourself. So I had to veganize some classics and that's what I chose to do. Uh, but the majority of the book is actually plant-based and that way specifically I'm keeping the traditions. Cause I get that question a lot because the book actually has the word traditional in it quite a bit. So a lot of Armenians will obviously be like, what do you mean traditional if it's vegan? Because Armenian cuisine, like many cuisine in that region is seen as meat centric, which is true. Meat is usually the centerpiece, but these dishes that I'm talking about in the books, the Lenten ones, these are part of our tradition because they go back all the way, you know, because we're starting, we had that process. We had the Lent, we had all these other fasting periods. So they are a part of our history. They have stories behind them too. So I'm bringing the tradition that way. And the way I look at it with the veganized foods, exactly what you're talking about with these foods have stories behind them. Most of our meaning cuisine, like you're never going to hear about a dish and there's not like an hour story about why it came to be or what the, <laughs> like, you know, what there's like a joke about it or something. So to me, when I think about how do you honor tradition when you're changing your diet, it's about knowing what the food was for, like what the story behind the food was. So I don't think our ancestors are going to be like, oh, you're gluten-free or you're vegan. Don't change the food to enjoy it. It's going to be about keep the story behind the food alive because the story tells about your history, right? So if I'm just changing something, if I'm removing a dairy from a, let's say a pastry or I'm not using honey, that to me is not the important part of making a dish. It's about knowing like there's a bread we have that you're supposed to make it during Easter. And when you make it, you're supposed to put like the imprint of a cross. You have to remember, it takes a very long time to make. And the idea is that you're constantly putting your love and your like soul into this bread. That's how important it is. So whether I'm using vegan butter or like, let's say oil or, 
I'm not using a dairy product, I'm still doing the exact same tradition. I'm being so mindful when I'm preparing it. I'm putting that imprint. I'm preparing it for Easter. To me, that's the way you preserve a tradition versus kick everyone out who's like, you know, who has a lactose intolerance, who's vegan, who has a gluten intolerance. We can all be inclusive and just keep those traditions alive in these more little modern ways, you know? Yeah, no, I absolutely love it. And, and it's interesting because like you're, you're towing kind of a fine line on the like traditional stuff. Just thinking of like interactions I've had with, with family and friends when like you try to recreate like a classic, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you try to recreate like what, you know, you have every year on a certain holiday, like once, once a year, like you are going to get pushback <laughs> if, if it is not like what everybody expects and, and, and knows. So, exactly. have you, so like, you have to have the highest standards. Yeah, so you, you have do. to make sure like if you're going to do, I believe that if you're going to do it and call it the same thing, it better be almost like you should not be able to tell the difference at that point. If not, you can call it a different thing. But that's why anything I was making, my taste testers were always like family members and I'd always try to see if they could tell. There's some things where you're kind of like more open about it being different and you're okay with that. But anytime I'm trying to mimic a classic, 100%, you have to have the highest standard and it should be, yeah, there should not be a difference from the original because otherwise you're going to give, you're doing a disservice not only to veganism, but to the dish itself. And I feel like it should be, you should be very strategic about what you choose to veganize. I totally agree with that. (laughs) And on sort of the um, more whole food plant-based side, um, could you give us like some examples of like some of the the Armenian dishes on that side? Sure. So um, one example, and these are some that I didn't even know about until the cuisine is pretty different in the diaspora and Armenia. So there was, there's a region called Bike and I went there and I remember it was a restaurant like in a remote or like a remote area. We we're going for a hike and we just saw this little restaurant and we went in there. And I again at that point I learned the word Lenten, like to use that instead of vegan. And I think I asked for it and she's like, Yes, I have something like there's a stew. And I was like, amazing, that sounds perfect. It was cold, everything was great. And that, for example, is um it's called Lopa Hashu, and it's a on the surface, it's a red uh, kidney bean stew but when you actually look at the ingredients like there's also very finely like sometimes you can't even tell it's in there very finely ground walnuts so it's in the soup as part of the broth to make it like extremely thick and then some of the beans are also um bl- either blended or i think mashed up in the, some areas you can tell and then it's lots of greens in there lots of onion garlic and it's like this incredibly filling delicious stew and when you think it like there's a protein from the beans there's proteins from the walnuts and all together like you, I had like a small bowl and I was thinking, oh, I have to order bread or something. And you finish that off and you're full, you're satiated. And to me, like when I think about whole foods, plant-based dinners, that's something I would prepare now. You know what I mean? When I think about like eating something healthy and it's filling and it's good for you. So these are, that's just one example. But in the, um, even with dolma, there's the vegetarian version that has rice. Some of it has bulgur. It's made with vegetables. Like these are all pretty, like very healthy. Like obviously some people put a lot of oil. You're going to put a lot of salt. It depends on, you know, where you're eating it. But generally speaking, these options that are like Lenten and vegan, even the ones with grains, like a lot of the grains, they put like vegetables. There's like mushroom uh, pilafs and stuff like this. So it's like a grain plus vegetables in them. They're all, um, I would say like they're healthy. And the only difference you're going to notice is if you go to someone's house, they might put a lot of oil or they might put a lot of salt. And these are the things you just have to watch for. But if you're making it from home, these are all like really, really good options. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. What would you say if you had to pick your favorite one? What would you What would you say? <laughs> so I always, um, I always I pretend I'm shocked when someone asks me this, but I'll say there is a favorite from Di- I want to be fair. So there's a favorite from diaspora that I grew up with, and then there's a favorite from Armenia itself. So from the diaspora, and I'll say that this one is veganized. It's mantabur, so it's a dumpling soup. But the way my grandmother prepared it, it's like uh, the region specialty way of preparing it. So um, it's like, a, yeah, as I said, dumpling soup, but it's made in a tomato paste uh, broth. And in that broth, you put lemon, you put mint, you put sumac, and then uh, you top it off with garlic yogurt. It's just one of the best things on the planet. And when I think about comfort food, like it's, it hits every check mark with that. I remember when I was traveling once, like the only thing I was craving when I was like outside of my house, like I was going to Europe and I was just like, all I want is like a big bowl of mantabur. So I think that's incredible. And I veganized it by using mushrooms. And again, that's an example of a soup where all those flavors like the tomato paste the mint the sumac garlic yogurt you're not going to notice the meat being replaced by mushroom because in the end all those other flavors combine so well so that's an example from something i grew up with in armenia one of my favorites is it's a type of dolma but we never grew up with it it's called lenten dolma perfect for me so it's uh it's a pickled cabbage leaf and inside is three types oh this is a this is the best example of a whole foods dish it's three <laughs> different types of beans there's also lentil. Then they put the big bulgur, spices, onions, all the good stuff. And then it's cooked in a tomato broth. And it's just like the cabbage is, um, even though it's pickled when it's cooked, it's meant to be so soft that when you, you can like cut it with a butter knife, it's just such a delicious meal. It doesn't photograph that well. It's kind of a weird looking dish, but it's so delicious. And it's like, again, all those beans, the grains, they all complement each other to make like the full protein or the complete protein. And um, it's not just because I think it's healthy, it's delicious. So that's my Armenia choice. And then the Mantabur for the diaspora. That's amazing. I may have to pause and just hit the fridge real quick. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what is, is there a seen amongst young people in Armenia like there is here and elsewhere like that want to eat more plant-based and more this way or is it not there at all? Oh it's definitely there and when I think about 2011 to even like five years after what's amazing about Armenia you can see all these changes happening like you can witness them if you're there and like sometimes sometimes there's small changes and sometimes they're big ones but um, what I, after I left, actually, I was back in Canada before I returned, I found out there was a, they're actually using the word vegan now, like in English, and it's being translated to Armenian with like, it's like vegan, like instead of saying plant-based or this. So the word vegan now is an Armenian, right? So that's a big change because before you would never say the word vegan, there's restaurants that are now advertising that again, there's some that are like more American style. So they're saying we have like avocado toast or we have granola, like this kind of stuff. But there's Armenian restaurants that are now like understanding that desire for plant-based food. So I, I remember when I was in Canada and I saw this advertisement of this barbecue place and it's like a small little place and they have like always the, you know, those, ma- the ones you see in Zada's videos, like huge, right. like different types of meat, like everything you can imagine. Um, and then I saw that they did an advertisement saying for our vegan friends, we have cauliflower barbecue. And like vegetable barbecue is a thing. We're just, it's a side, right? So you're eating the meat, but then you have the potatoes, you have the peppers, you have the eggplant. So vegetable barbecue exists. But again, when you think about like, when I'm saying meat centric, the meat is the highlight. So when I'm seeing this restaurant, like an Armenian restaurant saying like specifically for our vegan friends and they did it as a wrap with like a delicious tahini sauce, that to me was making me understand that things are changing. But on top of the word vegan, seeing restaurants keep up with the demand, there's actual vegan groups now. Like there's a... Uh, what's that one called? The one that uh, anonymous for the voiceless. 
Oh yeah. They, they come into the, one of the main Republic squares and they show videos of factory farming. It's, it's an interesting approach. I'm not sure. Like, um, I haven't been there well, like I haven't seen it in person. I don't know what the reaction from people is. And I'm not sure if they're trying to say, don't eat things that are coming imported. I'm not like, I'm not sure what the, the, if the message is specifically about factory farming or they're trying to bring awareness to maybe the way animals are treated, but there is that too now, which again, 2011, no way. And there was even a by 2014, if I'm not mistaken, I documented it. There was a vegan fest. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, and it was a heart of Yerevan. They unfortunately did it the same weekend as this huge wine festival. So you're getting people to come to the vegan fest, and then right after, they're going straight to the wine festival. But that happened for three years in a row. It was on pause, obviously, this year because of COVID. But that's it. like these are things that it seemed unimaginable at the time when I first went there. And now you're seeing it. It's always from the young people, right? So in, whether it's for animal rights or it's more from an environmental perspective for health, I've seen it all. So it definitely exists. And now I feel like you could even go there. And as long as you say vegan with a little bit of an accent, you can find stuff. Wow. That's super interesting. And is our, our, how do people get there? Like what is, is there factory farming there or is everything imported? That's what I was always wondering with Anonymous for Voiceless. That's why I mentioned, like, I'm not sure if they're showing footage from other countries and then saying, like, this is what you're doing when you're buying imported meat. As far as I know, and again, this was what I what I knew at the time. If it's different, I it's new information to me. There's no factory farms in the way that we know them in Canada or the U.S. in Armenia. There's obviously many farms. It's an agricultural country. There's, you know, huge supply. So, again, I've seen the photos. I've seen, I know some people who do it, but I'm not sure what they're actually showing. So there is import, obviously. The supermarkets are having foods coming in from different countries. But let's, especially outside of Yerevan, most people are maybe buying stuff locally. Like they, when they, like the way it works, like literally farm to butcher, right? Like you can go to a store and I'll say, we just got meat literally from 10 minutes ago, you know? So it's, I'm, I don't know if the goal with them is showing that there is an issue in the world or for if they're trying to show that when you're eating animals or you love, you know, the idea of like, you love dogs, but you're doing this to cows. Um, so I'm not sure what the goal is, but it exists. And I'd love to see what they're actually doing. Yeah. That's awesome. In your experience with friends and family, what is, what is like the biggest pushback or reason people are kind of like against going plant-based or, you know, doing one of your recipes versus like, you know, the traditional one? Um, in the beginning, for sure, it was the health concerns, which at the time, I always say like, at the time, it was kind of like, a little bit disheartening to always be like, you know, defending it, defending it, defending it. But when I think about it now, I understand it when people are concerned about your health and these are your family and friends and they think like you're doing something extremely, you know, different and extreme and not yet backed by anything mainstream, you know? So I think definitely in the beginning, it was just simply like the health thing. Like how could you survive not eating meat, like iron concerns, protein concerns, like all this kind of stuff. And then um, there is definitely like, especially I'll speak from it from a personal point of view with Armenian, definitely that it's like almost like an insult to the culture themes, you know, it's, I understand it. Like all of this is not when people say it to me or when they said it before, I never looked at it. Like I'm shocked or how could you say that? Like I 100% understand it. And at the very least, like I can understand that when we think about vegans, like when I think about a Canadian vegan friend who's telling me like, it's difficult to maybe be vegan or it's, it was difficult in the beginning to you know, have a group of friends and they want to pick a restaurant and maybe before when there wasn't too many vegan options, you have to be the annoying person being like, oh, you know, is there anything for me or I can't come there, whatever. With like Armenian culture, it's like magnified because you're thinking like anything I go to with family, anything we do, 
they're going to be, it's going to be like 10, like times 10, because it's not just restaurants that you choose to go with your friends. It's your entire life. So um, I think there was pushback for health and then also for culture where it's seen as like, not anti, I don't want to be that dramatic, but just as like, um, you're like almost like turning back on that aspect of the culture and cuisine is huge, right? Cuisine is such a big deal. So I think it was, yeah, I would say both of those, if not equal, very close to each other were the main um, issues with going vegan. Yeah, I always like, it. it's funny how, you know, we get together with friends and family and whether it's like a night out at a restaurant or you're, you know, going to grandma's for dinner or whatever. And, you know, I know like there's, we gather around food, but like, I always try to remind people and remind myself, like, I'm not going there for the food. Like I'm going to spend time with my friends and family and the people I want to spend time with. Like the fact that you are maybe like put off or offended by me not having any of your chicken dinner, like to me makes zero sense. But I understand culturally, like that's a thing, but it's like, I'm here to spend time with you. Like the food is not my focus at all. I don't care if you don't have a vegan option. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to, you know, have my beer and I'm going to enjoy everybody. Like, leave me alone. You know Exactly. Like, and you're bringing the idea too of like the, 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 what I'm saying about bringing traditions into this new age, like you're bringing the actual meaning of getting together to the forefront. You're saying I'm getting together to see you not to sit down and eat food. Food is a definite, like it's a plus, but we're getting together to see each other and to talk. So it's like, you're keeping the tradition that's technically about meeting people alive you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. And people, you know, uh, you know, not to talk down, but people like really are so focused on the food. Um, and definitely people that maybe, you know, have like eating issues and things like that. Like when they get together, like it's all about eating the food and then you almost want to be like, Hey, slow down. You want to like have a conversation and like, you know, not focus so much on the food and getting an extra dessert and like, yeah. And I've personally been there where like in those scenarios, like I used to struggle with that stuff and I used to struggle with like trying to remain healthy and, you know, not overeat and not kind of, um, you know, feel bad about the decisions I was making and everything. But, um, yeah, I think like so many people are, whether it's food addiction or, um, you know, they use food as an outlet or whatever, it's just such a, it's, it shouldn't be as big of a focus. It's just food, you know? I totally agree with that. And do you find that's still the case? Or do you find like with your, at least your friend group, it's kind of more understood that you're going to come if there's a vegan option. Cool. If not, you're there to see that. Yeah, I think it's definitely more understood, but I think it's definitely like trickled out, you know, like when I go to, you know, most, most of like my, most of my friends are vegan, but when I go like to family um, who aren't, you know, they're very aware and conscious and generally like if I'm coming, they will at least cook something that is vegan. Um, and it kind of trickles out and it's really cool. And they, you know, will, will generally always have an option, um, or cook the entire, you know, meal vegan, even though I tell them, you know, of course they don't have to do that, but, um, you know, that's cool to see, you know, I, I feel like people are, are worried at first that they're going to be shunned. And then, you know, if you show up, with positive energy. And, you know, at least for me, like 
I'm kind of the healthy guy in the family, right? And I show up and I have energy and I feel good and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, people, you know, they're, they get interested pretty quick. They're like, oh, what, you know, why don't you eat this or why don't you do that? And, um, you know, so certainly with me, like it's just trickled out and people have, have welcomed it. That's awesome. And did you, with your family, was it pretty um, kind of accepted? Was it okay from the beginning? Um, yeah, for the most part. Um, I do think like there were some concerns with it. it. It's funny how like there's concerns and now like as I gathered information and gathered knowledge and, you know, dove into nutritional science and all this, you know, I then became concerned for them, um, yeah. which is such like a funny thing. It's like, you know, I go over there and, you know, if they're actually eating, you know, what I think is very, very bad food, you know, burgers and, um, whatever, like it kind of honestly hurts me. Like I, I like obviously want the best for them and want them to be around for years to come. And, you know, I know what I know now. Um, and the sort of scary thing is they know what I know. Um, but just don't apply it the way I do. Um, yeah. So that's, that, that is probably one of the more difficult things for me is just seeing friends and family that, um, have the information, not, not choosing to apply it. Exactly. Yeah. And you put it, so I never thought of it like that, where the health concern kind of gets flipped. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure I know you're not being like judgmental to them, but I just mean like, it's so interesting how that happens that it's like, you know, 10 years ago, you're all worried about the vegans. And now it's like in a, in a way, we're just like thinking about what we know, the studies that are out, all the research and you're just, yeah, that's a very interesting way to look at it. But yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So what is, uh, what is kind of next for vegan, um, Armenian kitchen? Do you, um, you know, plan to do future books or what's kind of, what's kind of the future as you see it? So we were doing the tour. That's, I think, how we initially That's got right. connected through Zade, right? So we yep. were doing the tour, which was going really well. We did, we wanted to focus on the areas that, not the areas, sorry, the cities that actually sell the book. So we did it in Glendale. We did it in the greater Los Angeles area. We did it in Toronto and then in Boston because we sell it um, at the Mu Armenian Museum. And uh, we also sell it at Arax Market, actually. So we were very happy to do that. And then we actually came back. We're planning to continue the tour in U.S. and Canada I think we were going to start in June and we started planning it out. And then of course a global pandemic hit. <laughs> so it put everything on hold, rightfully so. So that was on hold. We're hoping of course, when things get better, we can continue. It was very, it's a good way to also meet people and to talk about like a lot of the questions we were get were specifically about, you know, vegan and Armenian, how could they, you know, live simultaneously. So a lot of people would come to learn more about the book. So hopefully we can continue that for now. We're just doing obviously everything switched to zoom. We're doing presentations. And uh, for me personally, I was vegan Armenian kitchen. I'm going to keep updating the website. I, I want to include recipes. I've talked about it before. There are some recipes that obviously didn't make the book. And some of them are just because they were too similar to other recipes and I had to kind of choose the, the best ones, quote unquote. So I'll keep updating the website. I'm working on a couple of different, I, maybe it's not going to be a physical cookbook, but I'd love to do more. Um, I have one project coming up. I'll, mention it soon when it's like a little bit closer to actualization, but yeah, lots of recipe, recipe developing this kind of stuff happening. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you self-published, correct? 
Yeah, so it was me and Sirun. So she's the photographer and the food stylist of the book. She's from LA. She's my LA, like the partner from LA. So we self-published together. That was a decision we made. We both wanted to, and it was like a kind of our way of taking control of everything and making it exactly what we wanted it to be. Um, it w- I'm very happy that we did that. I just, when I think about like um, the work process and everything that we both had to do, like she had to do all the food styling, all the photography, all the visual components of the book. And then I'm doing the recipe developing the research and the writing. And then I always think like, it seems like a blur now, but on top of that, we always had this like, we have to also self-publish this book and make it like any issue that comes with, you can't ask anybody else. You have to do it yourself. So it definitely made, I don't know, like, it's not that, I'm trying to think of it in the sense that I've always wanted to put a pot like a positive spin, but I think when I think about what life would have been like just with the roles we had, like photography and food, like recipe development, it would have been a very different experience. We were definitely feeling like that stress from that. But if anyone's interested, I would totally recommend it because in the end, it was exactly how we wanted it to be. And like when you have that creative control, it just pushes you to like think of every aspect, like what you want, what you like, and you're the one who's answering your, to yourself, right? So I would definitely recommend it. I don't know if you've seen like inside or anything, but it's like we tried to include lots of visuals on every page. We included some like Armenian quotes that are translated. They're kind of like food proverbs. So it was just nice not to have any resistance. Like if I want to put, I want to put the Armenian quotes in there, if we're working maybe with a publishing house, they'll talk you out of it or see it doesn't make sense. So it's exactly what we wanted it to be, you know? Yeah. And how did you print? Like that is this beautiful looking book and the imagery is clearly amazing too. How did you, Thank how did you, you go about <laughs> self printing um, like the hardcover, high resolution, like beautiful book cover on there? Like, How'd you do that? So we talked to, originally we had talked to, and that was like part of when I'm talking about the extra stress that happened. That's part of the reason is we were talking to a couple of different printing houses. We actually settled on one. Like we were very happy. It was based in, was it, we it was, first we were speaking with one that's based in the US. And then we started speaking to one that was based in Canada. We settled on one of them. And then very close, maybe a couple months prior to our publishing date, they actually had to let us know that um, the time frame they gave us was unfortunately not taking into consideration that we were printing around Christmas time. And we ended up realizing it's not going to make our deadline because they had to add like a couple of weeks on it. So that was a main major problem for us where we last minute realized we had to change our printing house. So we ended up going with another one in Canada, which I'm very happy about because I love them, but it's called Fryzen's um, Printing House and they're located, if I'm not mistaken, in Manitoba. So we got in touch with them. They're actually a worker-owned company. So I feel like it suited us because we're doing the self-publishing route. So it was very cool. And we were essentially, they will, we upload everything with them and then we can see what it looks like. We can ask them questions just to make sure, like, is this bleeding? Is this coming on this side? Like we can ask those technical questions to them. But anytime like something wouldn't work, we'd have to fix it. We'd have to get it changed. So uh, the printing house was amazing. We loved their quality. We we're able to see samples, obviously, but the choosing one was a little bit difficult. And then obviously switching them was just this unnecessary stress that had to happen, but we're so happy with it. I'm so happy it was printed in Canada. You know, it makes it not just because I'm happy it's created here, but also it just, anytime we have to order them, we know we're, we're not dealing with this like shipment from very far away. It's like very close and we can make changes to it. So yeah. Yeah. And was this sort of your first entrepreneurial pursuit? Yes. Oh my gosh. I don't know why I thought about that. Yes. This was like the first major entrepreneurial pursuit, which is why a couple of times you're just thinking like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> why did we choose to do self-publishing? <laughs> but um, it was, and I'm, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Obviously, no matter what, with every 
print we've now it's the second print so with every print you're noticing little things you just want to update or change there's minor things like that but I'm very like in the end of the day not to toot our own horn but I'm very impressed with what we were able to accomplish and I'm happy that we both have the mindset that it will only keep getting better like with any new print we're just going to continuously improve it but it's just yeah it's uh, two people who are very passionate about something and we're able to bring it to fruition and in the end it's to me, it's a resource, like it's something you could have and you could look through and the photographs and the design are very beautiful and you can look through it. It's like some people will call it like the coffee table book. You can look through it, mm-hmm. but there's also recipes. And I like that. It's not only, it's not just for vegans. Like we've had lots of Armenians get it because they're like, they literally will just tell you, I want to use it for Lent. Like for 40 days, you have some inspiration with all these recipes. right? And then for other people, it's just to liven up the sides. And obviously there's the vegans, there's the non Armenian vegans, there's Armenian vegans. So I just like what it represents, you know? And there's obviously, sorry, a major thing for me is the history and the culture and kind of just showing that, you know, as I was talking about before, like I'm trying to include those stories in there as much as possible. Some of them are anecdotal, but other, most of them are like history based. So even if you're making the vegan version, I'd, I'd love that you're at least continuing knowing what that dish represents, you know? Yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to somebody that maybe wants to publish their own book, <laughs> what would it be? Um, I would say for sure, have a very good team that you trust. Cause that's what got us through everything. Like we had an amazing, we hired an amazing designer. We had an amazing copy editor. So our team was very strong. And I knew that whatever, like whatever everyone was responsible for, we didn't have to micromanage. It was going very smoothly. And we all, we, we were confident. I never had to worry, like, is it not going to work? Or is this like, I just had to focus on my own work and the publishing. So whatever team you have, just you know, make sure you, if you don't know the person, make sure you're like seeing examples of their work. You understand their work ethic because with self-publishing, you basically are going to be in contact all the time. So you better make sure, you know, you understand each other's communication style with us. It worked really well. And one of them, one of the, sorry, our um, designer was, is in Armenia. The editor is in Canada and students obviously in Los Angeles. So we're always in these email chains communicating. So it makes a big, big um, impact to like your team, to trust your team and not need to micromanage because that just, stress I think nobody wants and then with self-publishing I would also just make sure you know what you're getting into we had an idea we just didn't think that like we would have to switch printing houses that was something like you can't really foresee but just know what you're getting into know what you're going to be responsible for because when you're working with the printing house you can ask them technical questions but anything any changes any new additions that's on you so you just have to know what what adds to your role and just give yourself a lot of time (laughs) (laughs) don't rush it you know what I mean because in the end of the day no one's going to look it over and say this is good this is bad you have to be the one to look it over so yeah just those couple of things but I think the most important one is uh trusting and knowing your team totally totally I like that well we're getting uh above an hour here and I don't want to keep you much longer um but where can people follow you where can people buy the book um give us the rundown Sure. So the book is available on veganarmeniankitchen.com and it's also available on Amazon in the US and Canada. We have it in some select stores. All of those are listed on the website. You can click the links to the stores as well. And on Instagram, we're Vegan Armenian Cookbook. And on Facebook, it's exact same handle. So the at, at Vegan Armenian Cookbook. And for uh, until we get to peace, I just want to let everyone know we're also donating 30% of the book and the tote bag that we have. We have actually the map of Armenia and Artsakh on it. We're donating that to proceeds to help uh, the people of Artsakh. So if that is of interest to anyone, just letting me know. Awesome. Awesome. Well, 
I want to give you a shout out because I think what you're doing again, it's like you really are addressing like the core thing and the core reason, in my opinion, um, outside of like, you know, behavioral change and in, in the difficulty people ha- have changing their habits. But beyond that, like the traditional element is just um, such a block for so many people to, you know, eat better and eat sustainably. So um, I think what you're doing is, is amazing. Um, and I'm going to order a book. Um, and yeah, I just appreciate what you're doing and, and, and appreciate the work you're doing. And um, I know, you know, new things like that take a ton of time and ton of energy. So kudos for you for uh, making it happen. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you do. And you're spreading such a good message with veganism. And I like the approach of just putting it out there and you kind of lead by example. So I'm very grateful for the work you're doing. And I'm very grateful to be on the podcast chatting with you. So thank you, Zadeh, for introducing us, actually. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, and I will leave um, the last word to you. Is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with that we maybe haven't touched on? Um, I would just say that in the end of the day, your health is the biggest factor. So if you are not feeling great and you're interested in veganism, I would just definitely put yourself first. That's how I also see it. When you look at it from a health perspective, put yourself first and you can see if, you know, you can reach a potential, maybe you didn't even know you had and to just, I don't know, do, do it, do have sympathy for yourself, have compassion for yourself. It doesn't have to be overnight or um, all or nothing. You can ease into it gradually. Some people do it overnight. I understand. Them, but you don't have to there's no pressure and most vegans are very welcoming we love getting questions we love talking to you so reach out to any vegans you know if you have any questions and we're all a supportive kind community so just don't be scared to ask any questions and to reach out i love it well thank you so much again thank you so much Times I've related is your-